It's good to see everyone back out tonight. Uh, it's wonderful to be able to finish off the Lord's Day together and to open up the Bible once again and to study for just a few moments. Jeremy and I are both going to be speaking this evening, and we're going to be doing something we've done on, on several different occasions as we look at really two different aspects of a topic, and we're going to look at polar opposites this evening. We're going to talk briefly about some of the things that God hates and what that means to us and how that should inform the way that we think of those things. And then Jeremy is going to talk to us about what God loves and how that should inform us and how that should shape the way that we view those things. And so for the first part of this lesson, I'm going to ask you to turn to Proverbs chapter 6 with me. There are actually several instances throughout Scripture in which strong language is used to describe things that God detests or that he dislikes. And in particular, here in Proverbs chapter 6, things that he hates or things that are an abomination to him. I want to read just these few verses with you this evening and then make a few observations about what's being said here. So beginning in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse number 16... In context, this, this section of Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon is warning us about the worthless person, beginning in verse number 12, a wicked man and, and what they do and what they look like. And we get down to verse number 16, and he says this, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. I read that several times this week as I was trying to think about what what is it about these seven things? Why are these seven things included here? Why, what is it about these particular things that God hates? That they are an abomination to him? What makes this list so important for us to consider? And as I read through this, there was one thing that kept coming to my mind. As you read this list of seven things, collectively they represent the antithesis of who God is and what he stands for. We talked this morning, for instance, about the importance of humility and humbling ourselves in the midst of conflict between one another. And we do that because that's what God values. He values humility. He demonstrated humility through Christ. That is something that is incredibly important to God. And so what's the first thing on the list that God hates? The exact opposite of that. Pride. A proud look. It is the opposite of humility. A lying tongue. God is truth. Therefore, he hates the opposite of that. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. That is the opposite of standing up for the marginalized. That is the exact opposite of love. The things that God places value upon and wants us to see as important. 
A heart that devises wicked plans is the exact opposite of wanting good for others. Feet that are swift and running to evil is the exact opposite of seeking righteousness. A false witness who speaks lies is the opposite of honesty. Sowing discord among brethren is the opposite of unity. Why does God hate these things? He hates these things because they are the exact opposite of who he is and what he values. So when I think about the responsibility that I have, again, as we referenced this morning, to be an imitator of God and to value what he values and to like what he likes, I also have a responsibility to hate what he hates. And as such, I have to look at a list like this and I have to realize that there is no such thing as just a small amount of innocent pride. There is no such thing as just a white, innocent lie. These things are the exact opposite of who God is. He hates them. When I think about just things in my own life, and you can probably think about some in your life, you like to do things that you find enjoyment in. We do those all the time. It doesn't take any convincing for me to do something that I find joy in. I'll do things all day long that I like. I'll even do things that I tolerate. I'll even do things that I am disinterested in, that I really couldn't care less about. But I will avoid at all costs things that I truly hate. That's the approach that we must take to these types of characteristics. Because that's the approach that God takes to them. He is the exact opposite of these things. He is the furthest from these things that he could possibly be. And if we want to be imitators of him, then we have to train ourselves to have the same types of feelings towards these things that God does. Now, we look through this list, and some of these may be a little bit easier for us. For instance, the shedding of innocent blood. But do you stand up for those that are less fortunate? Do you stand up for the marginalized? Are you there to help the needy? The shedding of innocent blood is the extreme, but what God values is the love and kindness that we show to those who are in need. This list is meant to be something that shocks us. It's intended to be something that reminds us of just how aggressively we should avoid these types of behaviors and instead look to the behaviors and the characteristics and the trait that God embodies and embrace those. And when we do that, when we train ourselves to be more like God, train ourselves to think more like God, then we too will come to hate these things. But that takes time and that takes discipline to convince ourselves of the need for that and then to train ourselves to think that way about these things. Because these things surround us in the world today. 
And many of these things, or at least branches of these things, are not only acceptable in the world today, but they are celebrated in the world today. The world doesn't hate these. The world loves these. And therefore, the more that we train ourselves to hate these types of characteristics, the more different we will be from the world, the more different we will be from those around us. But if we're going to wear the name of Christ, and we are going to proclaim to be imitators of him, we must look at these things the way that God does. And we must draw a distinction between who we are and what we value and what the world is and what it values. God hates these things, and so should we. And we could leave the lesson at that this evening, but when we talk about something like this, it's also important to realize, okay, well, I can't just hate these things. What, what is it that I'm to be attracted to? What is it that I am to embrace? God hates these things, but God also loves other characteristics. And God wants us to love the same way that he loves. So Jeremy is going to talk to us about that. We think about God's relationship with love. For me, and probably for a lot of you, the first passage that comes to mind is 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. It really is a unique way to phrase it, right? When John is talking about God's love and not just who he is, but what he is. In an interesting phrase, almost a descriptor of God telling us that not just that God loves, but God is love. What a unique way to say that. If you thought about John, it isn't just necessarily telling us about who God is, although we're able to see that but he's really telling us what God is. That his very essence is love. His very, the fullness of him is love. And when we begin to think about him that way, and we begin to think about the significance of that, what that does is that sets God apart. It makes him unique. He, he stands out. He's very different from all other, all other beings for sure. Because of his love, his love makes him unique. His love makes him stand out. Now, when we begin to think about that, it, it should not come then to us as a surprise that for us as followers of his, we're asked the exact same thing. I want to draw your attention to the Gospel of John in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, I want you to think about 1 John 4, God is love. That's, what stand, that's how he stands out. That's what makes him unique. That's what makes him different. His essence is love. And so in John chapter 13 now, Jesus, he's going to establish what he will call a new commandment for followers of his. But listen to how he describes it. He says in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Now, this love here that Jesus is talking about, that he calls a new commandment, this love that we are to have for each other, all of us here in the room as Christians, Jesus says that love will cause you to be different, will be an identifier for his disciples. It will cause you to be unique. It will cause you to stand out. That should make sense to us. Because God's love is. Now, even though there in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, that part of the passage you have in your mind, God is love, three words, very easy to place into your mind, there's more to that verse. There's really even more to that text. Peek over there. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, think about the text of what John's talking about. When he reveals God and his essence is love, why does he do that? What is he talking about here? Is he talking about just God? Is he talking about just love? Or is he talking about something else where he reveals this very essence of God? Look at what he says. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You see, in this incredible context that we learn that God is love, he's talking about, even here, the love that we are to have for one another. And he says, if that isn't squared away, If that isn't our focus, we're standing not with God, but away from God. Why? Because God is love. So if I'm struggling with my love, my love here specifically that I should have for one another, if I'm struggling with that, I'm struggling with my relationship with God because God is love. And so when we begin to think about that, it is a powerful, powerful thought. So let's get practical for a few minutes tonight. Let's think about our relationship with one another. Let's think about the significance of that relationship. I want to direct your attention to another passage that is well known, but we're going to use it in the context that it was intended. A lot of us are familiar with the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the brethren there in Corinth, it gives us a list about love. And a lot of times we'll use it to say, well, listen, this is a good definition of what love is. And there is some sense to that. There is some principle to that. A lot of times this is a passage that's used at a wedding when a husband and wife are being married and they're being put together. This passage is often read citing love and what love is all about. And even though there are some principles, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 isn't talking about the love that a husband has for his wife or a wife has for her husband. It's not talking about it specifically there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, if you want to know about the love that we need to have specifically husbands and wives for one another, you can look to passages like Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul will get very specific about that kind of love. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the specifics are the love that I will have with you, all of us, for one another. That's the context of where we are in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about their relationships with one another there in that congregation. 
And in the midst of that discussion is when he gives us this passage about love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's a powerful passage about love for sure. And yes, there are big principles that we can apply to love across the board, but specifically in this passage, the love that's being talked about is the love that I have for Nick Petrie. It's the love that I have for Forrest Bacon. It's the love that I have for Sarah Arden. It's the love that I have for Christina Hill. It's the love that I have for the people that I share Christ with. It's a beautiful passage that is, comes out really pretty at a wedding for sure. But it's talking about the love that I have for you and the love that you have for me. And the reason that we are to love one another in that way is because God is love. Now, I want to share with you two things that we can be kind of thinking about by way of application. You're going to say I'm going to do something very preachery with one of them, where one of the points is actually two points, so it's actually three. But I'm being funny with the math because two sounds less than three, right? But I want us to think about, well, what then does that look like, right? That's what we want to know. Well, what does that look like? What impact do that have? How does that play out in the life of me and Tim Arden? How does that play out in our lives? Well, what then does that look like? Well, again, biblically, God helps us. I'm going to give you a few things to think about. Well, one of them is right here in this same context. And this first point is really going to be two, but you're going to see the, the point that I'm going to make. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 specifically, and in Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to go as well, the Apostle Paul is giving us an incredible analogy with reference to the Lord's church. That the Lord's church is like our physical body. It is an, it's, a perfect, it's a perfect analogy. Well, we shouldn't be surprised it's found here, but it is a perfect analogy. And it has so many different applications. But we're going to think about just one of them with something that he says attitude-wise in these two passages. One in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the other in Romans chapter 12. They're both 12s, so it makes it very easy to pop into your mind. We'll look at the 1 Corinthians 12 one first since we're there already. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 25 beginning. In verse 25, this is towards the very end of this discussion where he's talked about the Lord's church or we are a body and we are together and we are operating as one and we need to care and love one another. And he gives this reason, verse 25. This is the case so that there should be no schism or division in the body. But listen to this but that the members should have the same care 
for one another. What, what does that look like? Well, he tells us. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now keep that passage in your mind and turn to Romans 12. In Romans 12, Paul is using the same analogy with reference to the Lord's church as the physical body. Listen to this. It should sound familiar. In that same bit of discussion in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15, he makes this statement. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I've made the point over the last couple of weeks that as we near the end of a year, it really is timing and mentally a unique time in our year. Even though we are equipped at all times of the year to look backwards and reflect and look forwards to things that we need to work on, well, we are equipped, just to let everybody know, you are equipped to do that in June. And you're equipped to do that in May, and you're equipped to do that in July. And I would recommend that continually throughout the year, looking back to reflect and looking forward to things that you need to work on. But there is a reality that we are equipped for that kind of thing right now. And so I've been using that in the last couple of weeks to kind of help us. I'm going to do that again tonight. And these few things that we're going to talk about, practically speaking, with our relationship with one another, I want you to be thinking about, are there opportunities, or where are the opportunities to showcase that specific kind of love for the brethren here? The Apostle Paul says, listen, when there is reason to rejoice with a member of the body, you rejoice with it. Why do we do that? Why, why do we do that? Love. What does that look like? Well, lots of different things. A new Christian, baptized into Christ, an incredible time to rejoice with them, with their family. Marriages, which we have seen recently, an incredible time to rejoice with them. New births, new jobs, promotions, incredible things that are happening in the lives of the people that we are battling with. Let's think about how it is that we can rejoice with them. Giving them a call, giving them a hug smiling about the incredible blessing that's in their life. Now, that takes a little bit of effort. We've got to be with one another. We've got to listen to one another. We've got to know one another in order to really take advantage of that. But in a lot of ways, that's the easy one. It's the one all of us can be working on. But you remember in that same breath, I'm going to squeeze a second point out of one point. Weep with those who weep. Why do we do that? Why why do we do that? When someone is struggling spiritually, that we go to them to help. Why do we do 
those kinds of things that we do when someone loses to death a member in their family. And we give them a shoulder to cry on and we bring food for them to eat and to share. Why, why, do, why do we do that? Why do we share here a very different hug when we are weeping? Why do we do those things? Love. Why do we love? Because God is love. And I want us tonight, I want us, we've got a good amount of folks here on Sunday night. We're in a unique position in the place that we are in, in the width that we have to be looking around and to see all of the opportunities that we have to showcase that kind of love. And there's one other thing I want to share with you tonight. One other way that we can practically go to work with this type of love. In the book of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, Peter says this, still love, guess what? Above all things, have fervent love. For what? What's he talking about? Fervent love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And then he says in verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, one of, an easy practical way to showcase our love for one another is rejoicing with those who rejoice. Let's make sure we do that. Weeping with those who weep. Let's make sure that we do that. Secondly, hospitality. Being hospitable to one another. I looked up the definition of hospitality or or being hospitable, and and you can see all kinds of uh, convoluted definitions. Some of them are really long. Some of them are really short. There's a real simple one that I found that I liked, and and there's a reason I liked it that I'm going to share with you, but the definition is friendly and welcoming to guests. I like that. And you might think, well, what part of that do you like? You like the friendly part? I mean, I do. Maybe it's the welcoming part. I mean, I like that as well. But you know what I really like? The guests part. Because that gives me an idea of what hospitality really is all about. It is that guest part. It is the incredible opportunity that we have that we can be together. And it's a way that we can love one another. Now, you can be a guest of mine in lots of different places. You can be a guest of mine in my own home. But you can be a guest of mine in other places as well. You can be a guest of mine at Sushi Boss, where Keith and I have lunch from time to time. There are lots of places you can be a guest But it is that inviting idea. Why do we do that? I mean, the easy thing to say is, well, God told us to, right? Sure, I mean, he did. There is a command. I mean, there isn't a, this is a good thought. It is be hospitable. It is a command for sure. And and there is a little bit of, uh, because I said so, impact on that for sure. But why do we do that? Because we love one another. Polar opposites, hate and love. We could spend some more time digging into the book of 1 John. 
And he'll use those two words multiple times to describe our relationship with one another. And although hate is a word that we don't like, and it isn't, it's a word that when our children were young, it was, they were not able to use the word hate. It's just, a, it's just an ugly kind of word, an extreme word in a lot of, lot of ways. But think about what John says. If I don't love my brother, if I'm just not showcasing the love that I need to be showcasing, it's not indifference, or it's not minimal love, or it's not a little, it's hate. It's murder. Those are the equivalents. And so for us, as we close, let's think about where we are today in our relationship with one another, what we can work on, And then secondly, let's not lose sight of the opportunities. The opportunities to rejoice. The opportunities to weep. The opportunities to be hospitable. This morning we had 401 people here. You know what that means? No shortage of opportunities. No shortage of opportunities. And so let's consider, let's be open, let's be honest, and let us love. Why? Because God is love. And as John talked to us tonight and this morning, I want to be like God. I want to hate what he hates, and I want to love what he loves. And you know what he loved more than anything else? You and me. He loved us more than anything else. How do we know that? The price that was paid. And as John is going to lead us in a song of invitation, it is that thought that I want to leave you with. That incredible love, the incredible love, unspeakable love that God had for us. Knowing that our sin which separates him, uh, uh, him from us, that sin which destines us to death, He knew there wasn't anything that I could do about that on my own. So God took that upon himself. He sent his son to be a sacrifice. He sent his son to spill blood so that I can come in contact with that blood through the waters of baptism and have that sin washed away. Why did he do that? Love. That's why he did it. And as we sing this song of invitation, it gives us an opportunity to think about that. And you may be here tonight, and you are separate from God. Well, his love is calling you to him. And that can happen through the waters of baptism, having your sins washed away. Or maybe that is where you have been, but you have stepped away from him. Well, his love is beckoning you back. Maybe we can help with that as well. If we can in any way, you let us know as we stand and sing.